Carter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry Hutchinson here for Interpreter Radio this uh, Sunday evening. I've got my co-hosts with me, John Gee and Kevin Christensen. Good evening, brothers. Welcome. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks for being with us here on Interpreter Radio. For the next two hours, we'll be talking about some issues that are important to we as co-hosts and hopefully you as listeners. Our sponsor of this program, the main sponsor and producer, is the Interpreter Foundation. The Interpreter Foundation, as we've mentioned, is a 50C3 corporation. It is means essentially that any donation you make is tax deductible. It is a nonprofit corporation, and frankly, nearly all of the money donated goes to its various projects, which are growing all the time. Um, the new project that will be coming out in the next few years, they're working on a movie very similar to the Witnesses movie that we did uh, about the Witnesses to the Book of Mormon. And uh, some of those are still coming out with little snippets of uh, what they call docudramas that are put out online every Saturday night. And uh, the, for more than 10 years now, the interpreter has released a, at least a once-a-week article online for free and in addition to that there's books and lots of other projects just last week they sponsored the uh, sixth annual matthew brown uh, temples on mount zion conference and we just wanted to also thank a couple of our sponsors one of them is uh, ldsagents.com so in this real estate market which continues to change almost on a daily basis because of interest rates if you are trying to sell a property or buy a property or you have some questions about the value of your home go to ldsagents.com because ldsagents.com is a group of about 2000 real estate agents across the United States and Canada they share your values and they can help you wend your way through this market. As I said, things are changing every day. Sometimes the market's a little hotter than others. Sometimes it's a good time to buy, watching the interest rates, trying to be able to get into something that you can afford, as well as being able to take care of the needs. You may have someone so they can tell you where the good schools are, where the good uh, you know, activities for your kids, or maybe you need some special instruction. But those agents who know their neighborhoods, can help you with that. So we want to thank them for being a sponsor to the program. We also want to announce that there's still spots for the uh, Interpreter Foundation tour that will be coming up in October, and uh, it's going to be a New Testament tour in Turkey, and it'll take place October the, I want to say October the 9th through the 18th, uh, and then there's an extension that runs from the 18th to the 23rd for a few extra days. Um, so go to BountifulTravel.com and uh, look up the Bible tour that's there. You'll be going with experts on the New Testament. In fact, did you know that two-thirds of the 27 books in the New Testament were written in Turkey or were addressed to communities there? And for those of you who have been there, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, going to Ephesus is just a fantastic experience. In fact, uh, next month, we, 
we'll try and have uh, Dr. S. Kent Brown on with us. He's got the BYU New Testament commentary volume on Ephesians that should be out hopefully by the end of the year in hardcover, but possibly around Thanksgiving on Kindle and on Deseret Bookshelf, so be looking for that. He started that project while he was on a service mission in Turkey several years ago. And he's been to the site several times. And it is phenomenal. There's just all kinds of things to see. So if you're interested in that kind of travel, uh, especially with Interpreter and the um, the guides that you can get and the academic knowledge that you can get as well as the spiritual experience, once again, that would be a fantastic thing for you to, to look into. So go to the Interpreter Foundation website for more information or go to Bountiful Travel. Now, in the meantime, here on Interpreter, as always, we uh, like to talk about things that have been going on this week. There's several events. One of them actually hasn't quite happened yet. Kevin, uh, you want to tell us what's happening next Friday? We'll put you on the spot. Yeah. I will have my my 10th Interpreter essay will be published uh, on Friday. And that will be 20 Years After Paradigms Regained, Part 1. The ongoing plain and precious significance of Margaret Parker's scholarship for Latter-day Saint studies. So I've been working on this for about a year, and part two will be out at the end of January. So remind us of what paradise, Paradigms Regained was all about. I'm actually holding my copy, which is uh, well-worn. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in fact, excuse me, Kevin, I have to, I've said this before, but I will say it again. This little booklet that you did, this occasional paper years ago for farms, changed the way I study the scriptures. And um, it raised some questions, and Margaret Barker raised some questions that had always been in my mind and that I felt, at least for me, were the real questions that I was looking at whenever I studied the New Testament. Now, I can't speak for John and how much it affected him. He's a little younger. But uh, I will tell you, uh, in all honesty, that uh, my life and my scripture study is significantly different because of this uh, book that you did. So tell us a little more about it. Well, I, I wasn't the first one to, to quote Margaret Barker in an LDS journal. I think that was Ross Barron and Martin Tanner, at least, were the first ones that I saw. But uh, they started quoting her fourth book, The Great Angel, in, uh, in the mid to late 1990s. And it was just because of some of these other quotes. Uh, I think I also saw uh, Daniel Peterson and Barry Bickmore, and uh, I think uh, John Trednus had done it. Uh, but it was because I'd seen those quotations from one of her books that uh, when I was wandering through a visit to a Dallas half-price books, and I saw a shelf with several copies of The Great Angel, I recognized it as of interest. So I, you know, oh, that's, <laughs> pulled it down, and I bought a copy, and I took it home to read it. And before I was halfway through, I called my brother back in Dallas, and I said, go back to the store and buy up every other copy of this book. <laughs> that's why like I, the used copies were so expensive for a while. Yeah. You well, uh, cornered the market. Yeah. Well, I actually I sent several copies to farms. I, I don't know who got them. I distributed some you know, to some you know, family and friends. But uh, I collect. Then I spent some time collecting everything else that she'd written that I could find. Uh, I got you know she at that point she'd written six books, and before I finished, she'd written the seventh. And I coll- uh, located several journal articles and uh, collected those. And 
uh, spent two years working on it. Uh, I'd, I'd asked Daniel Peterson that I'd gone to the St. Louis Temple Open House, and, and Daniel was there giving a, a lecture, and I talked to him after, and I said if he knew, <laughs> knew whether anyone was doing anything with Margaret Barker's work, and he said no, but he put me in touch with, he said he thought it would be worth doing, certainly, but he, he put me in touch with Bill Hamlin, and so I spent a year working on a draft, sent it to him. He made about six sentences worth of comments on it on one page that sent me back to work for another year. And then uh, and it, uh, it was published in, at the very end of uh, 2001. Actually, I got my copies in 2002. And uh, I sent, when I got my author's copies, I sent Margaret a copy, and she emailed back. She said, uh, came about five hours ago. I've read it already in an all-uppercase. I had no idea that what I was doing would be of such significance for Mormon studies. Thank you for sending me a copy, and for that matter, thanks for writing the book. So I mean, usually when I write something, I've, I take heart from something Robert Heinlein said. He's a you know, famous science fiction writer. He said, publishing is like dropping feathers down a well. You know, you're waiting for a splash and nothing happens, basically. <laughs> but in this case, when Paradigms Regained came out, it didn't take long before I could see things happening. Like, I could go to Amazon Books, and if you looked at, you know, what are other people, you know, that are buying her books, what are they, what other books are they buying? And it turned out to be clearly, you know, things like Rough Stone Rolling or uh, Nibley's Temple and Cosmos or uh, Terrell Gibbons. By the hand of Mormon, so and then it, it worked the other way too. So there's lots of cross pollinization, and uh, Noel Reynolds apparently was working at a on a project in the Vatican, and on his way back to Provo, he decided to read The Great Angel. And when he he read the book, got really excited, and he went into the farm's offices and he went to ask Louis Midgley if anyone had heard of her. <laughs> and they said, "Yeah, they, we've just published Kevin's thing." So then Reynolds got in touch with me and asked if I'd been in contact with Margaret, and I had a couple of times, and so I gave him contact information. And then he arranged to go have a visit, and he went and spent about five hours with her, talking about her work and her interest in, in the temple. And uh, that interview led directly to her coming to BYU. And so in May of 2003, she came to BYU, and then uh, there was a room full of, you know, notable BYU scholars plus me and a couple of others. Brant Gardner came in for a few in the last three days, and uh, there was uh, Allison Von Felt got there uh, somehow. And she just kind of finagled away in from Kansas, and it was a fascinating five days. And uh, she made lots of contacts and connections with LDS scholars that have persisted to this day. So it's been a really interesting thing to see happen, and to have been part of, and. Uh, an old Reynolds told me that my writing Paradigms Regained saved him the trouble. So I have this sense that this all would have happened without me, but that I get to be a part of it. And, you know, to see, you know, it's far bigger than I am, certainly, but to, to have been a part of it is, I just stand all amazed at it. I'm really astonished at what's happened and uh, amazed to be a part of this, to see this stuff, and it's, and it's ongoing. You know, she uh, she was there at the, or at least she did a Zoom talk at the Matthew Brown conference last Saturday. That was on the on the Jordan book. So it's it's ongoing, and and I think uh, as I say in the title, it's plain and precious. Um, partly to 
give a, an, an explanation to our listeners who may have wondered where this Paradigms Regain came in. Part of that uh, played off of uh, the work of Thomas Kuhn. Would you like to explain how you see the work of Thomas Kuhn, who is a historian of science, and Margaret Barker, who is a biblical scholar, how you saw that um, working together and uh, how that led to your title? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, well, I'd, I'd gotten interested in Thomas Kuhn's book many years before, and I've, I've been quoted in quoting him and using his, his uh, work in a lot of my studies because I find it helps me focus my attention always in productive ways, every time. So I keep coming back to it because it helps focus my attention. What Kuhn's book is about is about how science changes its basic framework. So if they spend some time doing Ptolemaic astronomy where the, the assumption that everyone is working under is that the Earth is the stable center around which everything revolves and everyone is working in that. And it's very productive, and they've Ptolemaic astronomy got to be very elaborate and very accurate. But there was the problem of retrograde movement in the planets that was very difficult to explain, and it was getting more and more kludgy to try and account for that. How how come these these uh, wandering stars seem to be going backwards when everything else is is more orderly? And uh, so. The revolution is when Copernicus comes along and he writes his book and he suggests that the sun is at the center. Well, initially, then this is when the debate happens. This is paradigm debate. Should we stay with Ptolemaic that we know and we use and we have, you know, lots of astronomers are still working on that? Or should we go with Copernicus? And there's all sorts of debates and problems. And then what Kuhn studies this and shows that, you know, what the, how the process goes, how crisis shows up, how, uh, how the decision is made, and, and it really struck me that uh, because you're, you're really comparing different sets of rules and approaches, so you can't really use the rules of a paradigm to make a paradigm choice. You know, if you're doing that, you're just saying, well, the, you know, the, this new theory is not us. This new wine can't be as good as ours, and there has to be a way to compare that isn't completely self-referential. That is what he calls paradigm-dependent. So it, it turns out to be it's a value-based choice, that there are no rules for making it, but that there are criteria for making the choice that aren't paradigm-dependent. And he identifies those as in, not you know, as a theory, but in pragmatic practice. You can see that people talk about puzzle definition and testability, accuracy of key predictions, comprehensive and coherence, that's breadth and depth, and uh, fruitfulness, that is, you try it on for size, and if you start seeing things that you never would have seen otherwise, that can be, uh, give you an argument in favor of the new paradigm. Simplicity and aesthetics, and at, at first, this is one of the benefits of the Copernican theories because it was so much simpler. And initially, it wasn't as accurate because Copernicus theorized spherical orbits, or circular orbits, rather, uh, circular orbits, and it was... Uh, uh, I'm going blank. <laughs> Kepler, it was Kepler who, who came up, he figured out that it was elliptical orbits, and that made it more accurate, and that's one of the things that helped seal it, and that, you know, some of Galileo's work on it. So it, it, it wasn't an instant thing where everyone just looked at the new paradigm and thought, oh, that's better, and they all collectively decided at the same time, based on the same information, to make the choice. Instead, it's value-based, and it happens, it can take generations or generational, and it's usually not that everyone instantly adopts the new framework, 
but the new one attracts more and more of more practitioners and the other one basically dies off and then people shift to the new one so that's when you hear words like paradigm that's referring to the background framework and a paradigm shift is when the change happens and, and so is useful so kevin what was exactly the paradigm shift that you described in your first book and then um this new project that you've got is a follow-up to that, and it's essentially a report of the last 20 years. And it's yeah. got two parts. And, and this one that will be out Friday really summarizes everything Margaret's been up to since and yeah. some of her impact, but really the, re- the the full impact you'll be talking about in your second half, correct? Yeah. Well, the, my, the first one, I opened up with this quote from Margaret's first book. Her first book was called The Older Testament. So, you know, the implication is she's looking at something beneath and behind the Old, Test- the Old Testament that we have. So this is this paragraph. The life and work of Jesus were and should be interpreted in light of something other than Jerusalem Judaism. This other had its roots in the conflicts of the 6th century B.C., when the traditions of the monarchy were divided as an inheritance among several heirs. It would have been lost but for the accidents of archaeological discovery and the evidence of pre-Christian texts preserved and transmitted only by Christian hands. So what she's saying is, she's, she says, if you want to understand the roots of Christianity, you have to go back and reconstruct what was going on in the first temple, which takes you back to Jerusalem in 600 B.C. And so when I read this stuff, of course, I you know was recognizing all things all through it, but just the notion that she's going back to Book of Mormon times and uh, Barker and Joseph Smith clearly used very, very different methods for coming up with their their pictures. And so uh, all I did was I said, well, let's just compare the pictures and see whether they fit. And if they're different, well, no big deal. That's what you'd expect. You know, if, if they disagree uh, consistently, then clearly that's just because they're looking at different things. And you, you can't tell one, you know, whether one is true or not. You just All you can tell is that they're different. But if they fit and not just with a few random parallels, but with an elaborate, comprehensive, surprising, stunning fit, then that's, to me, that's saying that they're both onto something, and that if if they're both accurate, then I think that's common inspiration and accuracy that best explains it. And so that's all I was trying to do when this with the first one was to just give a broad survey of what she'd done and show how it compares to what we have in the Book of Mormon. And in some cases, I, I could show um, you know, where she helps us resolve certain questions that we've had about Isaiah, questions about uh, the title of uh, you know, the Son of God and, and the knowledge of the uh, atonement in the Book of Mormon, when the common criticism of the Book of Mormon had always been, well, it's too Christian before Christ. You know, that was one of Alexander Campbell's complaints in the very first broadside against the Book of well, Mormon. Well, and Melody too Charles, too. Yeah, and then later Melody Charles, but th- that started from the very start. And uh, there were questions about Isaiah, and she has some interesting things there that I thought, <laughs> on the surface, it looked like it might conflict, but since she's using you know, the notions of first, second, third Isaiah, but she, uh, some things that she said in there, I thought, fit really well with what we have in the Book of Mormon. And... Uh, I mean, there's too much to take in. There's, there's even she, she'd written a paper called um, Hezekiah's Boil about the idea that uh, Psalm, or the Isaiah 53 on the suffering servant uh, 
was actually inspired by Hezekiah's bout with the plague as interpreted in light of the temple rituals, which he has some interesting evidence for that, but that would make Isaiah 53 pre-exilic and available to Abinadi, which would resolve the question. And of course, she had some questions too, because uh, in her books, especially in the Revelation of Jesus Christ, she's writing about the expectation of the second coming of the, of, you know, after the the atonement, then returning to renew the creation, and there was this immediate expectation of a of, of Christ coming that was based on you know, the rituals and the traditions. And I was able to show that what happens in Third Nephi resolves those issues for her. So it's there's a kind of a, a back and forth cross fertilization thing going on. And it's well, always, and it's really, really, it's that cross fertilization that has taken place since paradigms regained. And, and that's really what you report on in this first half of your of your new paper, um, yeah. Because because Margaret eventually read the Book of Mormon. She read the Doctrine and oh, Covenants, yeah. and she's given papers on it. Tell us a little bit about that and and how you um, you know and and it wasn't just you, of course. Um, tell us about that and how it fits into your new paper. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'd written a. After she came to BYU, and around that time, I guess uh, Jack Welch had, uh, had uh, invited me to write a paper for glimpses of Lehi's Jerusalem. And when I, when I was working on that one, that was about you know half of it was uh, stuff that was already in paradigm, paradigms regained, and half of it new stuff. And I sent her a draft of it uh, just before you know almost complete draft of it, and she read that and decided, okay, no putting this off any longer, and she sat down, she read the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price in one day. And her comment was, I was amazed at how much I recognized. And, and then in 2005, they had the Joseph Smith Conference at the, uh, uh, this, the, uh, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and, and Margaret was invited to come respond to a talk by Terrell Gibbons. And she decided to speak on the Book of Mormon. And the thing that I think was really striking about this, of course, you know, they didn't tell her what to say. We had no idea what she was going to say. But way back in 1953, he nebly had written a little essay on new approaches to Book of Mormon studies. And, and he said that, uh, that the way to test the authenticity of a book is to assume it's true and put it in the context that it claims for itself and see if it fits. And I've read dozens of approaches to the Book of Mormon by other scholars outside the church, and none of them have taken that approach. But Margaret did. So she starts out her talk at, at the Joseph Smith Conference by saying, uh, I'm just an Old Testament scholar. All I can do is answer the question, does the Book of Mormon fit the picture of Jerusalem 600 B.C.? And then she went through and she explained, yes, it did. And she five times refers to the Book of Mormon as the revelations of Joseph Smith. And you can tell that she's not just being polite, but she accepts it as a, as a genuine revelation, and that the be, that's the best explanation for what it is, and the, for the fit. So it's quite remarkable, and, and uh, so she's had working connections with you know, lots of scholars uh, in lots of different traditions, but, you know, the, but the, the Mormon connection has been so strong that even when she was invited to speak at uh, the Orthodox Seminary in Yonkers, uh, I think it was 2011 or so. Um, 
that you know for the leaders of that church and then you know she gave a talk and they really appreciated it and then they they had her for the interview on the radio after they broadcast it the first question they asked her they said what about the lds connection and she says oh yeah i work with the lds scholars because they have the best scholars on the temple no you know bar none and she said that publicly and they they'd seen the connection and they asked about it and she she just never blink when it comes up so it's very conspicuous and unavoidable, and I think it's, it's something that she's just, uh, I think, fascinated and inspired by. She, uh, when she had conversations with John Welch when he was driving her around uh, Provo and Orem, and they were looking up at Timpanogos, and they started talking about mountains and the mountain of the Lord, and Jack said that he'd written a lot about the Sermon on the Mount as a temple text, and she just her eyes, you know, wide, and she said, tell me more, tell me more, and so he told her about his approach, and he just said, you have to do that for us, and so he wrote this book as, uh, about the Sermon on, uh, on the Mount as a Temple Text that, that she published, and when she was getting it ready for publication, she told him, you have to mention in here that, that it was the Book of Mormon that inspired this approach, you know, so there it is in, the, in this book that was published. Uh, By the you know, Society of Old Testament. Is, studies yeah and so it it's it's conspicuous it's there she uh for a society of biblical literature meeting she's she's gone with groups of latter-day saint scholars on a couple of different occasions and she's talked about Melchizedek. she talked about hugh nibley and this is another thing that i think is really fascinating is uh this this goes back to to uh, uh when she was at byu and uh, they they had a thing for for lunches and for dinners, they had little groups. So groups of five or six would just have lunch or have dinner with Margaret so that everyone would have a chance for a more intimate conversation than you could get in a room full of other scholars. And I guess she was having her a dinner with uh, John Fedness and Lou Midgley, and uh, she, she told them that one of the things that turned her toward the temple as the key to everything was that when she was at Cambridge, she ran across an article in Jewish Quarterly Review it was called Christian Envy of the Temple by Hugh Nibley. So it turns out that the LDS connection goes back to <laughs> to the very start of her own uh, journey, that, you know, what separated her from other scholars and looking back to the temple. So it, it's just something that's fascinating, and I, I can't help but looking at it the same way that I look at the story of the, you know, the finger of the Lord touching the stones in the, the Book of Ether. It's just stones lighting up one after the other after the other in this. So, um, the what connections do you see between Margaret Barker's work and Hugh Nibley's work? Granted, he got her started, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, and they share certain approaches, and there's some differences there as well. Um, yeah, there, there's you similarities can, and, and differences. But of course, she's coming from, she was raised in, uh, she says, the most Protestant part of the Church of England. This is very conservative, and then she became a Methodist in like, 1984, 1985. But it was this, it was just that this, it, we converged somehow in Jerusalem 600 BC in the temple. And it's, we're both pointing at the same thing, the same period and the same time, since, you know, Joseph Smith takes us back there and he gives us a picture, and she takes us back there using a completely different set of sources, and we have the same picture. And I think it's also significant that, you know, one of the 
things that she comes up with is um, when she was writing The Great Angel, she said uh, that the root of that book was she had a student at Oxford that said to her, the thing that worries me is what happens to the name Yahweh, Jehovah, in the New Testament. She said, oh, that's a very good question. So she started working on it, and she, she was starting to write a book on the topic that would take her in the direction of you know, traditional Christian theology, and she found she couldn't write that. She had to she just have to throw away too much evidence. So she says she used the rejected evidence to write The Great Angel, and that was the book that caught the attention of LDS scholars, because when we read it, we see LDS doctrine being explained, I think, better than we had ever done it. Well, her writings caught my attention, and it wasn't the great angel that did it. I actually, my favorite is the risen Lord, and then mm-hmm. followed by the great high priest. And the thing I like most about the risen Lord is that in the footnotes, she engages with other arguments. Some might mm-hmm. say her critics. That's what I like about it best. And unfortunately, you know, she's just going so fast in the subsequent books that we don't really get that that stop and, and look. And there's, you know, obviously some some things about the risen Lord that don't comport with my understanding. But, Kevin, this was my experience, but I think we're getting ready to change to the New Testament for our Come, Follow Me. And as important mm-hmm. as Margaret has been for me in helping me study the Old Testament, it's really the questions she raised with the New and um, first of all, as you said, going back to that Older Testament, the underlying question is, what was the underlying belief of the people that caused them to recognize Jesus as the Savior? For me, that's yeah. what I look for in the, in the New Testament. Jesus never hid who he was. And when I'm reading about, um, you know, say, Larry Hurtado or Richard Bauckham and their quote, high Christology arguments about when when did the early Christians begin viewing Jesus as divine. That's where the great angel comes into play. That's where Margaret's work really comes into play. But the thing that Margaret says that I think that still they and other more orthodox scholars or more traditional scholars have a problem with is that she acknowledges that Jesus embraced his idea as the Messiah. No, no, not yeah. the idea, but that, that he was the Messiah, and he taught it, he proclaimed it, and that's something I think that they still are a little fuzzy about. And, and to me, that's really one of the hearts of what Margaret's done for New Testament. Is there, is there some of her work in particular that you'd recommend to our listeners as we get ready to move on into our next segment that would help them in their study of the New Testament? Yeah, well, her book... Uh Temple Theology, it's little, it's 100 pages, but it's very concentrated, and it's a good introduction, written to be an introduction, so it's really good. When we're talking about the Risen Lord, and the thesis of the Risen Lord is, that she, you know, she goes through lots and lots of sources to come up with this, is she suggests that when Jesus was baptized, he had the vision, it wasn't just the voice of uh, you know, the father's saying, this is my beloved son, hear him, or, you know, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the spirit, you know, came and took him away to the to be with the beast and the angel. She says that that was the vision that Revelation describes. 
and the, the first chapter, the first verse in Revelation says, you know, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him unto him to show unto his disciples. And so that's really interesting and striking. And then the other really amazing thing about that is if we read Doctrine and Covenants 93, it says exactly the same thing. That this is this revelation that Joseph Smith received, and there's there's no context, you know, about you know when and how this came. We just have it there, and there's lots of passages in D and C ninety three that we quote a lot. But it's just saying John is saying uh, that um, that we beheld that he did not receive of the fullness of the first, but then then it describes the scene of the baptism. And says that's when he received the fullness, and so it's not just going back to the six hundred B C. Thing that we have this extraordinary convergence of a really elaborate fit, but then when we go ahead to the New Testament and the, this key episode in the New Testament where she comes up with this radical idea, and it turns out Joseph Smith had the same radical idea that we really haven't done that much with. But I think you can take the Risen Lord and read it as the first meaningful commentary on DNC 93. And she hadn't read it, you know, she had no idea. So that, that's one of the things why it's, you know, for a lot of us that are excited by this, it's the depth of fit and the degree of fit on things that are important is really staggering. You know, it's this, this not just, you know, the, the surface ideas, uh, the things that kind of make us distinctive as LDS, the idea that we see Jesus as, as, as Jehovah, as the son of El Elyon, God Most High, and that's kind of what the, the great angel is making the case for. But there's the fit extends beyond that into talking about Melchizedek priesthood and the council in heaven and the heavenly mother and uh, Jesus' baptism as a as a profound transformative spiritual experience for Jesus himself. And yeah, she she kind of refers to that as the resurrection. So yeah. when you're reading it, you have to yeah. be careful because she uses the word resurrection in a different term than most of us would understand that as. Yeah, and, but she points out that in the Risen Lord that all of the texts used, the biblical texts used to describe, you know, to associate, that are associated with Jesus' resurrection turn out to be ascension texts rather than, you know, reanimation of a dead body texts. And, it's, and so the idea is, is that uh, when Jesus had this experience at his baptism, that's when he... It was kind of born as as the Son of God in the sense that he, he's shown who he really is. And then he shows, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he shows Peter, James, and, and John really who he is, and they experience part of that. And so that's something that continues. It, it doesn't replace the notion of his resurrection that's talked about in you know in Luke and the Gospels. Okay. And it shows up in 3 Nephi. It's, it's part of that. Well, Kevin, thank you for your efforts on this. This is a paper we've talked about off and on here on this program and also behind the scenes for a good year. And John and I are both really glad that you were able to get it out, and uh, it's finally coming to fruition. And I encourage people who don't subscribe to Interpreter, uh, just put it on your phone, and you'll Kevin's paper will hit your email Friday afternoon. And it, believe me, it'll be well worth it. Yep. Thank you. So... Um, Margaret also still participates. In fact, she gave a presentation at the Matthew Brown Temple uh, Temple, on Conference, Mount Zion Temple on Mount Zion Conference that we, we celebrated and was sponsored by Interpreter and I think a couple other groups at BYU. And um, 
just wondering, John, what you you chaired one of the sections. I chaired one of the sections. I missed Margaret's paper because that came. Um, I actually had was double booked, and so around the time that Margaret was giving her paper, I was giving a paper in another scholarly symposium uh, on the other side of the continent. Um, so the the conference uh, went fairly well. Um, it was not held at BYU this year because they couldn't find a place for it, even though it was sponsored by Interpreter and the College of Humanities and the College of Religion. Uh, so... Uh, it was at a chapel in Orem, but they did do a live stream. So thankfully, because I wasn't able to be there, I was able to. I think probably dip there was a couple of the presentations. Probably more people on the live stream than on in person. Um, mm-hmm. It's still a decent crowd in person. So I, you know, the the first night, and I was actually on interpreter two weeks ago with Martin Tanner. So we were talking about this a little bit. And I've, the, there were a couple that I was really looking forward to, in part because, you know, I had just completed this book that talks about uh, ancient temples and certain other things. And Wilford Griggs gave the Friday night presentation. And I lapped that up. I can't wait to the publication so that I can see some of the footnotes and some of the references that were behind some of the things that he was saying. But that was, for me, that was a highlight. It was just really a good way to kick the conference off in a way that uh, that really in- interested me. And then uh, David Calabro, of course, is always good. I hope, th- well, it might be too much to ask for some of the uh, off-the-cuff um, responses to the questions that Griggs gave after yeah. his presentation. Yeah. It would be nice to see some of those published. But <laughs> uh, he, um, it was vintage Griggs. Um, I felt his, a little bit like I was listening to Hugh Nibley. Because uh, he kept saying, everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. And that reminds me <laughs> of sitting in Nibley's class. It's just the style that they had back in the day. I mean, well, I would and they also like that now. <laughs> so almost my entire undergraduate uh, time at BYU, they had um, they had offices right next to the ancient studies room. And they had the secretary in the middle, but Nibley's was on the left and Griggs was on the right. And so they basically shared the office. Wasn't Anderson over there, too? Yeah, uh, Anderson's around the corner. But, okay, because uh, I remember all three of those very well. Yeah, and uh, um, so, yeah, there's some of that that rubs off. Um, but Griggs has his own style, and he's his own person, his, his own scholar. Um a uh, tremendous background, uh, impressive training, um, brought a lot of s- skills and and brought that into his presentation. But the thing I appreciated the most about his presentation is that he looks at the ancient sources through a gospel lens. And he's not 
getting it he's aware of the some of the secular things but he doesn't look at the gospel through the secular lens he looks at the material through the gospel lens and that yes. came out very clearly in his presentations and one of the things um one of his strengths uh, that uh, is perhaps underappreciated i i i noticed it right away and i you know having having spent some time in materials that he was dealing with uh i felt a kindred spirit that yeah. i that i was really grateful for and um so having him lead off the conference especially when we really haven't heard of much from him since he retired um no know, no it's it's his work that is in existence is phenomenal i mean i i first heard of him well i mean i i knew about it a little bit but the first time i heard about him in terms of how foundational some of his scholarship was was in that uh, article losing the battle and not knowing it Mm. by the evangelical scholars and they mosser and owens yes mosser and owens and they quoted and not they quoted griggs but they cited him on his early christianity and his early egyptian christianity work and he's uh, done some really nice things one of his insights that i appreciate um is that and I've I've often I agree with him on this. Um, he said, if you look at the way that non Latter Day Saints talk about Latter Day Saints, and they've got in their they've got in or living informants that they could ask, but they usually don't, and they can't even get the basics right. So, what's our chance? of approaching ancient Egyptian religion and getting it right. Because we can't ask them. Yeah, we don't even have any living informants we can ask. Um, How are we certain that we're getting this right? And that what we're saying is ancient Egyptian religion is something that they would even recognize. Um, And that's a really fair point. And it's not one that's uh, necessarily popular among Egyptologists who don't even understand the the question in in many cases. But it's something that I think about seriously: is how do you overcome the the tendency to import something that's uh, has nothing to do with what they believed and attribute to them. And that was one of his insights uh, years ago. I don't know that he ever published it, but I certainly uh, think that's a, a fair approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I've appreciated about his his work. So, Kevin, what uh, what... Uh, interested you about the conference obviously margaret gave a presentation about the uh some tablets from jordan tell us a little about that well one of the things i really liked at the start of her presentation was just looking at at some of the language and the metaphors used by a number of the different prophets about uh refining metals you know about uh you know the the dross and metals and and purification and 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 refiner's fire and things like that and then she goes and looks at the temple and says that uh describes all of these artifacts in the temple that would have required 
knowledge of metallurgy and refining gold and refining silver, you know, to, to be able to, the, you know, the, the Holy of Holies was lined with, with gold leaf, and, and the, there was the, you know, the Tree of Life was done in the shape of a you know, seven-branched <coughs> uh, olive lamp, you know, like a menorah, and uh, the, the basin that you know, held the water, all of these things would require knowledge of metallurgy, and of course it just clicks. That there's people have been making the case that Lehi and Nephi clearly had this knowledge, you know, because uh, Nephi is the one that goes out and he says, uh, "Just tell me where to find ore, and I'll make the tools I need." And when he gets to Laon, he admires the, the workmanship. And when he looks at the sword of Laban, it's the workmanship that. In- Kevin, are you the there? Yeah, I'm still here. All right, we lost you for a second. Somebody interrupted our signal. So go ahead and repeat that real quick. Yeah, so it's she's talking about how that uh, there's language just in the Bible that we have and in what we know about the temple that that it's clear that there was a tradition of metallurgy that was involved in it. And that, I think, shows up with, um, shows up early on in the Book of Mormon. I think for me it was just, you know, an eye-opening thing. And then, of course, when she, she talks about uh, the lead books, there's, uh, if you didn't hear the talk, there's there's uh, a YouTube talk of her at the, the Academy of Temple Studies where she kind of goes through and shows how information is, is encoded on them. She, she's focused on two of the tablets, one that has a menorah on it and another that has a honeybee, and both of which are symbols, of course, that, you know, LDS would be interested in. And she shows... Uh, Temple themes, and she talks about how with with Samuel Zinner, they figured out how that there are Hebrew characters on these cast plates. And if you, since Hebrew doesn't have consonants, it's just you know you read them in order. And they talk about you could start at at one and go to another one and, and another and another in a geometric pattern and start at any point and, and see what kind of words that you can come up with, and then do a uh, symmetrical thing on the other side. And together, those turn out to make sense and would be references to scriptures that she knows in, in the Old Testament. And uh, imagery that shows up, in, as she points out, in the later church liturgies. So she's seeing interesting connections and tying it with, uh, you know, the Petra and Isaiah and, and the idea that... Uh, but I think for me, just the, the real fresh eye-opening thing was, was that there, there must have been a knowledge of metalwork and metallurgy in the temple. And among the priests and among the priesthood, and that is, turns out to be another connection with the Book of Mormon. Well, yeah, and speaking of, speaking of that, Kevin, the David Rapley did a interpreter article on that about a year or so ago that uh, I found very interesting and talked oh, yeah. a lot about that, and he used uh, a scholar, I can't remember his name, but he's done some work in Harvard and all over the place about how Yahweh was partly a god of metallurgy but i think i'm misstating that clearly that that's a current theory i think one of the big people who's pushing it right now is patrick miller who if i remember right is it catholic you but i may be wrong about that mm-hmm. um he he has pushed that a lot um i think the evidence is inconclusive at this point um it's worth looking into but for the uh, for the tablets well we're, we're, well for the 
no, the connection what, with the metallurgy. Connection with metallurgy, yeah. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. I I know what that's based on, and um, it's intriguing, but I don't think it's a, a as tight a case as mm-hmm. I would like. Well, okay, and and thanks, Kevin. And um, actually, we're gonna we've just got a few minutes here in this first hour, and I, we wanted to talk a little bit about translations. Now, no. Thomas Wayman has done a new edition of his translation of the New Testament. We haven't really had a chance to dive into that yet. But everybody is going to be getting ready, and when this goes out on the air and on the podcast, Christmas is coming. People will start needing to get their uh, budgets together for the... Um, you know, for for what they might want to want to get, and so I'd I'd just ask each of you, um, if you were going to give some people suggestions for the upcoming study of the New Testament this year, maybe a couple of suggestions. One that's accessible to the general public and might be a little less money, and then maybe one that's a little more technical. And uh, let, let me give you an example. For me, I like Kevin Barney's footnotes on the New Testament, and you can get them online for free. Now, if you can't, you can always order one from somewhere, but it's way more expensive. But Kevin did this, I don't know how many years ago, 20? Um, And it's just a very, is is that right, Kevin? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you just Google Kevin Barney and footnotes for New Testament, and it's someplace online. And, uh, you know, it's just got great notes for additions, additional footnotes, if you will, or notes for the scriptures for the New Testament itself, just the King James Version. So that'd be one place to look. Um, another one is a, is a book that I ran across for my own project that came out in 1994, from Bookcraft, and it's called My Father's House, Temple Worship and Symbolism in the New Testament. And it's by Richard Neitzel Hossiful and David Rolf Seeley. And that one is very accessible. I think you can find used copies online fairly easily. And it is an extremely valuable look at the temple, which for me is one of the centerpieces of the New Testament, and particularly the life of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, I mentioned this with Martin a couple of weeks ago, but uh, a more technical recommendation that might be a little more expensive is called the Comparative Handbook of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. There's also a Mark volume. They're published by Brill. Uh, Daniel Gertner is one of the editors. I think the chief editor is Bruce Chilton. And so I would just recommend those. What that essentially does is it gathers rabbinic writings from that time, pseudepigraphic writings from that time, Dead Sea Scrolls writing from that time, uh, all kinds of those things. So when, And then it gives you a new translation of the New Testament, but then it has additional commentary or additional uh, parallels with that literature from Jesus' time. And uh, I just found it very fascinating. For example, when they talk in Mark about uh, Elijah and about John living in the wilderness and 
dressing a certain way and the shoe latchet. There are all kinds of references that Mark's audience would have understood because of those other references and writings that really helped um, add to my appreciation of the of the scriptures. So, John? Um, okay, so I'll my accessible one is Hugh Nibley's World and the Prophets. Now, that seems a little counterintuitive, but if you haven't read that one, uh, Nibley seems to be fairly um, esoteric. We ran one of his pieces through uh, what grade level is writing is this, and it came out 26th grade level. Uh, but World and the Prophets is not like that. That's They were radio talks that he gave over KSL. The forerunner uh, for interpreter radio. Yeah, it, once a week from the Tabernacle in Salt Lake. Um, and they are very accessible and surprisingly well-researched. It's your best entry into Nibley, and it deals with um, New Testament themes. For the technical one, I'm going to do two. One of them is um, uh, Michael. Oh, wait a minute. I'll do do the other one. Uh, Craig Keener's "The Historical Jesus of the Gospels" um, is it's massive, but I think it's somewhat accessible uh, and giving a case for the. Gospels being historical. And the other one is Michael Holmes' The Apostolic Fathers. And this is actually an edition, and it's the nicest one out there. You have the Greek on one, one side of the page and the English translation on the other. The notes are generally short and pertinent, uh, but if you want to see what the earliest writings uh, Christian writings after the New Testament. Uh, that's a, a superb uh, way to go get into them. And if you're a language nut, you've got the original, and if you're not, you've got a readable translation. Because sometimes you feel like a nut, and sometimes you don't. I know that's bad. Kevin, how about you? Well, I would recommend John Welch's Illuminating the Sermon at the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount, for starters, uh, just because I think it's an extraordinary piece of work, and for me, this transformed the way that I would uh, read those things. And then, uh, I guess I just would want to mention that the, the BYU uh, New Testament commentary series that's been coming out. I think would be a good resource. I'm glad you took that one. And the price of that is amazing for what you get. I mean, they have priced those volumes so far below what a normal commentary of that size would be. It's not even funny. Yeah. Those are... And as we indicated, Ephesians will be out by the end of the year. So there will be six of them. Um, And uh, we're going to try and have Dr. Kent Brown on with us next month. But uh, we're, we'll still work on that. But in the meantime, uh, I'd encourage you to start. In fact, my goal is to uh, to go through those all again this coming year. I, I set weird goals for myself on my book program. One year I did the entire uh, writings of Shakespeare. 
and that was almost a disaster. It almost killed me to do that with everything else I had going on over the course of a year. I promised myself I would never do that again. Well, as uh, when President Eyring in conference talked about that and said he mentioned it to President Hinckley, and President Hinckley was, where do you find the time? Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, We'll be back for the second hour of Interpreter Foundation Radio right after this news break. Uh, Please stay tuned, and we have a special Come Follow Me program for you. Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry Hutchinson for Interpreter Radio this evening for the second hour of our Sunday night broadcast. We are sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a 50C3 corporation. All of your donations to the Interpreter Foundation are tax-free, and the mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to uh, defend the doctrines, teachings, and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship. And uh, the Interpreter Foundation just celebrated its 10th anniversary this year, and it is amazing to see all of the things that it does. It publishes books, releases free articles online every week, um, sponsors movies, sponsors docudramas, sponsors conferences. We just had one last week on ancient temples, and uh, just a whole host of activities, including these Sunday night radio broadcasts that are later turned into podcasts. And so if you are interested, just go to the Interpreter Foundation website where you can learn more. I want to thank one of our long-term sponsors, which is LDSAgents.com. Uh, they are a group of about two or 3,000 LDS agents who have united together to be able to help you in determining what's best for you and your family in today's real estate market, whether you're buying, selling, relocating. Uh, Go to LDSAgents.com, and you can find an agent there that shares your values and also somebody that knows the neighborhoods that you'll be dealing with, whether it's selling, whether it's buying, and can kind of help you because the market right now is really volatile as interest rates change nearly every day, as people uh, get worried about the economy. You know, they still have to move. They still have to find houses. So go to LDSAgents.com, and you'll be able to find somebody who can help you there. Uh, We also wanted to remind you that that, uh, if you can go to BountifulTravel.com, you can look up the Interpreter Foundation Tour, which will be a biblical one for Turkey this coming year. Two-thirds of the books in the New Testament, there are 27 of them, so two-thirds were either written in Turkey or written to cities in Turkey. And so this will be a great opportunity for you in October of next year to uh, take a cruise and visit and learn a lot from the guides that will be able to share a lot of good information from you as well as uh, be able to see some places that you've always read about in the New Testament, which is uh, going to be our Come Follow Me study course this year for the for the church. And um, this evening, John and Kevin, we have a special program because we are a little off calendar 
as we know. So next week, Interpreter is going to be introducing some new features for the Come Follow Me section. But this week, we get to talk about Christmas and especially about the Old Testament. And for me, as I was thinking about it, it really follows on with what we were talking about just in the last hour, particularly with the work of Margaret Barker, who really ties in the Old and the New Testament. I mean, Kevin will correct me if I'm wrong, but if if I recall, there's the story of um, Margaret being at Cambridge and them asking her if she wanted to specialize in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and she said, why? It's all one volume. Is that kind of, did I get that right, Kevin? Yes. Yes, that's. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I, I just wanted to say that um, this entire year of studying the Old Testament has been an incredible joy for me. I mean, I love the Old Testament. I love the fact that the Book of Mormon is a bridge. The Book of Mormon I've always viewed as an Old Testament book, not a new one. I've never viewed it as being anachronistic when it comes to describing Jesus Christ. And so, when Kevin, when you wrote the uh, defense of uh, the Book of Mormon, and its approach to Jesus from a perspective using a lot of Margaret's work, I really uh, appreciated that because I agreed with it 100%. And so one of the things that the Old Testament does is it anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ, which is something that we in our day are anticipating again. And so, you know, we look back, maybe we have some traditions or some things like that that we can use. What are some of the traditions that you recall or that you have in your family that help remind you about this season and about about Jesus and what it's all about? Kevin, we'll start with you. Just the, the Christmas traditions, Christmas programs, that, I mean, there, there's a lot of the uh, celebratory stuff, but underneath it, there's always this sense that uh, you know, that we ought to be thinking about Jesus, and the gift giving is is inspired by the gifts of the Magi, and certainly the gift of Christ Himself. And uh, you know, even when I was a little kid, they we'd go over to the like the Orchard Second Ward, and they'd show the Christmas film, and the part of it would be like a marionette telling the story of, of Mary and Joseph, and that you know the, the repetition. And the songs that we would sing in primary, and, and also in the, you know the the, uh, the Christmas programs at church, and you know being in the choirs for a lot of those over the years, it's it's something that puts you in mind. And I, I think there's there gets to be something about the season, about December, about uh, seeing the, the lights come up in the houses, and the sense of of uh, you know, the, the word holiday originally having that holy day, and you start to, to recognize some of the holiness in it, you know, beyond the glitz and the, and the glitter, that there's something there that we really celebrate, and the, you know, the, the gift of life and the promise. There's something of that innocence and the promise and the hopefulness that comes with it that is uh, that has been great, you know, to, to experience, you know, as a child, as, uh, <clears throat> as you know, getting a a little bit older, starting your own family and saying, now kids, and then seeing it all again through their eyes, then becoming a grandparent and seeing it again through my granddaughter's eyes. You know, it's a, it's a, something that's renewing and, and uplifting. And uh, I remember uh, when I was at Beaumont High School, we had, a, we had a really good choir director and a really good choir, lots of talented kids, but just, you know, being 
doing the songs at Christmas and doing them, hearing them being sung beautifully uh, is something that uh, I find really spiritual and touching. John? Um, You know, as I've talked with other people about their Christmas traditions, um, the ones that we have either are widely shared or would make no sense to anyone else. Um, And so there's... um, the thing you do hope about it is you pass down family traditions. And uh, one time one of our kids was asked about what traditions do you have at Christmas? And we don't have any. Um, um, which we do. But you hope that they understand why you have the tradition as well as they, they know what the tradition, but they also know why it is you have that uh, some of the traditions uh, very can very easily slip into the foolish traditions of the fathers if you're not careful. Um, and you hope that you have something that's meaningful uh, that you pass on. Uh, that's the whole point of tradition. It's um, traditio is what you pass down. So, um, Christmas is one of the, is, is interesting as a Christian holiday because the earliest Christian holidays are all based on a lunar calendar. You have the Sabbath and you have Easter. And Christian, Christmas is a later one because it's based on the Roman calendar. And so it's the same date every year. Easter is not. Um, and, and the Sabbath is not. And uh, so it's a later tradition, but it, it's still worth, in as much as it reminds us of Christ, then it's worth celebrating. I think when it ceases to have that element to it, then it is just a foolish tradition. Yeah. You know, I was... In fact, my son was asking me about it today because he knew we were going to be talking about this. He says, well, what about the Roman thing that, you know, he's a big fan of Roman history. And uh, I just said, I have to confess, I don't pay attention to that at all. I view um, the day to remember the birth of the Savior as being the culmination of thousands of years of belief and of scriptures that we don't know and the scriptures that we do have and you know the angelic host singing for joy that this this culmination i i love the word culmination for it because it really does bring all of the prophecies all of the symbols all of the worship to a head um i it makes me feel like one of the uh, w- uh, one of the men I was working with, who um, I was asked to help him by our stake president, and he and I were studying together a- about temples. And he, I introduced him to Margaret Barker's work and Matthew Brown's work, 
And he kind of studied that on his own. And eventually he told me he was in the temple for the first time in a long time. And there was a place where it, in the ceremony at that time you you moved some of your clothing in a certain way. And he said, all of a sudden, it was as if a vision opened to him and he saw all of those who were worshiping all the way back. And it moved him to the point of tears where he was just weeping as a result of that. And when I think of the birth of the Christ child and the Annunciation, yeah, Christmas is great. There's lots of things about it. But when I think of that and I think of all of those faithful people who, you know, throughout the centuries and the millennia had looked for this date, I just am overwhelmed with it. I think that's probably why the Old Testament is my favorite and why I appreciate reading about the symbols and about the temple and the worship and becoming passionate about it and trying to share that passion with others because, you know, it is the pinnacle of everything that we have come to earth for. And so, yeah, we have a lot of family traditions and a lot of the traditions don't really have anything to do with that per se, but we hope and we work to make sure that we don't lose sight of that. So, um, Kevin, what are some of the symbols from the Old Testament that have really stood out for you this year that lead us to Jesus? Okay, well, one of the things that that I like is, uh, let's see if I can find it in here. I've got mine. It's it's the temple, and it's the world of the temple, and that's one of the things, you know, Margaret's Christmas book is is talking about how uh, the symbolism of the temple helps us understand what's going on in the Christmas stories because they're told, you know, the the you know, the story of uh, Zacharias at the temple and Jesus being presented at the temple, and then they skip twelve years to tell another temple story, and uh, and how that comes in there. So there's there's this. Um, She's, she's got this, this is just page six of her book, she says, um, and they're talking about how uh, the uh, 110th Psalm, it's in Isaiah 53, are two of the most requoted passages you know, from the Old Testament that are quoted in the New Testament, you know, which they're trying to explain, you know, that we see these things as telling us who Jesus is. And uh, like there's a, there's a line from Psalm 110, Today I have begotten you. That's one of the royal psalms, and they're, she's pointing it towards him. And they, they talk about how, uh, let's see, the psalm describes the birth of the royal high priest. She says that the Hebrew text is damaged, and the English versions give, On the day you lead your host upon the holy mountains from the womb of the morning like dew, your youth will come to you. That's the Revised Standard Version. Or, in the day of thy power and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. And the Greek has, in the day of your power and the glory of the holy ones from the womb before dawn I begot you. Well, that's getting 
more interesting. And then the gist of the Hebrew, she says, uh, no, one of the things that she she points out is, is that uh, the Hebrew, the Masoretic text of the Hebrew is unreadable. It's, you know, they kind of have to speculate or else look at the Greek and figure out what the Hebrew might have been at the time. So she says, on the day of your birth in the glory of the Holy Ones from the womb, I have begotten you as the morning star. And then she's able to point to uh, an early Christian writer, uh, Eusebius, writing a commentary on the Psalms in the 4th century. He knew a version of the Psalm 110.3 that had Mary, where the present Hebrew text has womb. And she points out the Hebrew um, Miriam from the womb had been read as Miriam. Mary, that is Mary. And she says it's not impossible. And that also points me towards this, uh, the, one of the prophecy in Alma words, you know, gets her name. So this kind of uh, thing, it kind of reminds me how beautiful the story is and, and to see more in it, not just, you know, to, to have the story that we preach in exactly the same way every year, but uh, to try and see more and feel more and let it touch us more. I think is something that we can do with this way when we study. When you know, it's important to you know to go through it again, but also to try and expand a bit to have our souls enlarged a bit as we learn some more. Since that's one of the things that happens in the season is our souls enlarging towards one another. Thank you, John. Uh, well, you talk about old Old Testament things that remind us of of Christmas. Um, oddly enough, um, the one that I think of is um, Isaiah 7 through 12. Uh, this is a prophecy given to Ahaz when there are some difficulties. and um, the, But this has been understood as a prophecy of the Messiah. So I'm going to... Um, this is... Isaiah 9 5, but this is a Jewish translation of the Targums. Um, so this is the way it was interpreted uh, not too far from Jesus' day. So hopefully our technical difficulty is passed. Uh, the prophet said unto the house of David, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he has taken the law upon himself to keep it. His name is called from before him who is wonderful in counsel, the mighty God who liveth to, to eternity, the Messiah whose peace shall be great upon us in his days. And that's not the only reference in Isaiah because... Um, they start out in, in, in that passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, um, verse 1, it's, the, the king shall come forth from the house of Jesse, and from his children's children the Messiah shall be anointed. And that's the way they interpreted that, that uh, scripture. And there's other references that they explicitly say this is the Messiah and we point those to Jesus and um, the they can debate over you know whether or not they they want to attribute that virgin birth and mentioned in Isaiah 7 um, and debate over that but the whole 
section was seen as messianic and as a prophecy of the Messiah by Jews um, in in Jesus' day and even after it. Well, but I know there were a lot of passages that were changed once the Christians started recognizing them and and using them to identify Jesus. So in right, other but words, these are still these are still, still there in the they're in the scriptures, but their emphasis was different. So they would be treated as a messianic reading during the synagogue readings or whatever they were doing. But when the Christians came along and started using them and saying, "Hey, this was Jesus," uh, they stopped using them in the synagogues as much. Uh, there, there is some of that, and, yeah. but the interesting thing is, is these are Jewish sources. They were available in Jesus' day mm-hmm. and show that they understood them to be messianic. Now, one of the interesting things there is the the term that is translated as Messiah in that uh, Isaiah 11 is Netzer. And there's that passage in Matthew where he says, he shall be called a Nazarene. Mm-hmm. And it said that's in the scriptures. Well, nobody finds that in the scriptures, but that Isaiah passage is was understood to mean that the, the Messiah Nazarene. would be uh, a Netzer, a, a Nazarite. So, you know, one of the things about Christmas is always, you know, getting together and maybe reading the Christmas story. And one of the Christmas stories that we don't always read is the story of Anna and Simeon in the temple. And I always enjoy hearing that one. And Margaret has a kind of a unique take on that in that uh, she says that Luke in particular is describing this story from a temple perspective. And um, she also makes uh, an indication, Kevin, about uh, that Jesus didn't need a sin offering. Tell us a little about that, if you would. Oh, I think you'll have to. I think it's been too long since I've read that one. Okay. (laughs) Well... Anyway, well, we finally caught Kevin on something that Margaret's written that he's got to refresh his memory on. <laughs> but uh, well, I think one of the reasons we don't read that one mm-hmm. as often is trying getting a four-year-old well, to sit true. still for that part. That's true. I'm pretty rusty on the four-year-old parts. I've I've got a granddaughter though this Christmas who's almost there. But, yeah, it's been a while for me. But, the you know, the story of Anna and Simeon in the temple in particular uh, has always struck me. And, and we have a fun experience of that in our family because, uh, I, you know, I've taught gospel doctrine several times over the years. And my wife, Janae, was called to be the gospel doctrine teacher of our ward just as we were picking up with the New Testament. And she was so excited. She worked hard. She spent a lot of hours studying and, and everything. And and uh, she said to me, I remember, she goes, this story of Anna and Simeon, it's so exciting. And I go, she goes, have you ever heard it? And I go, of course I have. Everybody has. And she goes, well, I wasn't as familiar with it. I'll bet not everybody in the classes. So she took a poll, and only about a third of them knew the story. And everybody else was like, okay, we're ready to learn. And uh this was this is just a a real interesting piece though because 
Simeon had one function in the temple. Anna apparently had a different function in the temple, or at least spent time in the temple all the time. She'd been there for years and years, and both of them were praying to see the Lord, and they both had their prayers granted. And uh, Luke makes it a point to bring this out to us. And then obviously, you know, there's these temple elements. um, And that was one of the things that um, really impressed me as I was studying the New Testament, particularly in line with this book that I worked on with my father-in-law, was uh, we did a chapter on Jesus in the temple. And how each of the Gospels treats Jesus and his relationship with the temple. And, um, you know, Margaret does a great job in the Christmas, the original story, of kind of identifying some of those things. Um, What are some of the temple aspects of Christmas that stand out to you, Kevin? Um, Well, one of the, like, one of the stories is that in the uh, Proto-Evangelum of James that she talks about, and also Nebley talked about this that I really like, is that they, uh, is that when, uh, they talk about how when, when Mary was, was actually in the temple and was working on weaving a new veil for the temple when the Annunciation happened. And I think the symbolism of that is beautiful because the, the veil represents you know, it's made of the four elements, uh, earth, air, wind, and fire. You know, fabrics representing that, and, and it's, it represents the boundary between the physical and the material worlds. And so the clothing of, they talk about uh, uh, Jesus, you know, being clothed in flesh, and we have the symbolism, like in, in the Book of Enoch, where, where they take off his, his uh, earthly garments and put on the spiritual garments, and we have that symbolism, of course, with our own. And, uh, you know, we have, you know, the idea of garments and skins and that represents, you know, becoming fully human and this. So that kind of, it's at that transition point where she's actually, you know, working on the boundary between the, 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 the heavenly world and the earthly world. And that she becomes, you know, in a way it, it ties in with her, her role as, as kind of the bridge and the, the, the gateway for that. So I really like that. Uh, and I just, I just found this page here about, uh, both Simon and Enya being temple prophets. So they knew about the birth of John some months earlier. This is a quote from her. They knew the prophecy of his birth since she was a very old woman. Anna had lived through Herod's murder of the temple priests in 32 BCE when they had been calculating. She knew the risks in making such a claim. So this is the thing where she, she ties, you know, their roles in so many of these characters being in the temple. And so that kind of symbolism, she, uh, in, in my essay, I, you know, at one point I quote passage in, you know, about just wrapping the, the babe and swaddling, you know, swaddling the child, and that that's, again, that's, you know, where, where when, the, when the priest is clothed in the temple, you know, in, in our own traditions as well, it's taking on the role, uh, taking on the identity that, through that that the, that the garments symbolize. And so when you know, Jesus is being born into this world, of course, he's wrapped in an earthly garment to show that it's, it's the opposite, you know, of, of you know, the the other side of the temple experience it's him coming in here and then being wrapped in these, in these uh, earthly garments so it's the, the more that we understand it the more we're going to see in this so the manual talks brothers about some of the symbols gen, general symbols that we pick up throughout the Old Testament um, they list a few of them the lamb 
the manna, the water, the brass serpent, the rock, the branch, and the light. Are there some other symbols that maybe strike you from our reading that aren't quite as maybe obvious or as uh, strongly reminded as these? Got anything, John, that comes to mind? Oh. Um, Leviticus the sacrifices in Leviticus are explicitly referenced in the Hebrew Bible as, as referring to the Messiah and his role the idea is that the, the Messiah is the one who makes the atonement uh, that's in Leviticus 4 and 5 and it's explicit in the Hebrew and even more so in the Greek. Um, where, so the, the whole idea of the sacrifices are bound in to, or one of those symbols that's bound into it. Now you get reference to that as the Lamb, the Lamb of God, mm-hmm. which is, uh, uh, otherwise peculiar to John, but, this whole notion of of sacrifice was tied up with, uh, and the idea was the Messiah that atoned for your sins, um, and that's in the in Leviticus, and so that I think that's one of the symbols that doesn't fit on your list or wasn't on your list that does uh, fits in very nicely with uh Jesus well and, and obviously it was something that was begun when they came out of the garden of eden um the yeah. temple teaches us this the book yeah. of moses teaches us this but surprisingly the bible doesn't um the well, book the of jubilees Bi- kind of does but no the the bible okay this is one of those places where yeah leviticus could probably be translated a little so they bring this out, but mm-hmm. it's in there in Leviticus. No, in I fact, know that. This is a, I'm not saying it's not. It, it always surprises me when you they'll talk about you have these books finding Christ in the Old Testament or something like that, and they always leave the Leviticus ones out where it explicitly talks about Christ. Um, doesn't in the King James version, but it does in the original languages. So this is something where. Yeah, we could probably do a little uh, better bringing some of that out uh, because that figures into the New Testament when they talk about um, in the book of Hebrews and uh, and other places in the, the New Testament, the Gospels, where they connect Jesus in mm-hmm. with those sacrifices. Well, and the nature of the sacrifices directly points us to Jesus Christ. I mean, that was the whole purpose of the Law of Moses, as described in the Book of Mormon. And yet, once the temple was destroyed, there weren't any more sacrifices. And it seems to me that there's an argument to be made that they lost sight of the Messiah and his mission as a result. Um, But remember, in the Book of Mormon... In Third Nephi nine, Jesus tells the Nephites, "Now that He has performed the sacrifice, mm-hmm. the rest of them will be done away." 
Um, so I think we want to be careful. Yes, there is some overlooking of of the sacrifice and overlooking of the Messiah on the well, Jews' part, but on the other hand, they're also told that the sacrifices are being well, the, done the away with. The Christians obviously knew that it was done away with. They continued their belief in Jesus and his saving mission, and instead of looking forward, they looked back. Yeah. So, the, and the, the, sacri- the sacrifice in the, the Old Testament sacrifices are replaced in Third Nephi with the sacrament. So mm-hmm. in that sense, um, we've undergone a slight change, but we're still doing that in instead of in, as you point out, it's in remembrance rather than anticipation. But it's, but it's still, still there. to Jesus. And it's still, yes. uh, because the sacrifices when you were when you'd made your sacrifice in the temple, um, certain parts of the animal are just burned on the altar. The rest of it, the meat was cooked, and you were required to partake of it. So you were partaking of this sacrifice as, and, and as a means mm-hmm. of partaking in the atonement, and that also is continued in, in, the, the, sacrament. in the sacrament even to the present day. Mm-hmm. Or at least it was for me this morning. <laughs> Kevin, what's uh, what's a symbol that wasn't on the list that they were giving us in the in the manual? Maybe that sticks out for you. Oh, uh, one of the things that I've been struck by, and it's coming from from Barker's approach, is where she she notes that in the especially in the Aramaic, the the same consonants are used to spell both lamb and servant. So she sees a connection between Isaiah's servant. And the lamb, and and you know, makes it a real elaborate case that they are they're referring to the same figure. So there's there's that explicit tie between Isaiah's servant and and of course the Lamb of God, and it and brings to mind uh, it ties the symbols together. We, we already see that, but I, I think that it's there in these double meanings in the language that uh, invites us to, to to see how tightly woven and how artful. Uh, these these symbols are. Um, I think the, the idea of the symbol is that it's it's always something that points to something real, and the difference between the something that's used as a symbol and an allegory is you know an, an allegory will have a one to one meaning, but but symbols uh, will have a wider range, and it, it's you can take it as far as you want to and, and find more in it in that sense. So it's something to. Uh, when I take the sacrament, and I'm, I always, you know, try to, you know, think about the hymn that we've sung and this, you know, the stories that we're telling, and you, it's usually this, the stories of of Christ's uh, crucifixion and the atonement and the resurrection, and, and looking forward to that, and, and taking it into ourselves, thinking about the symbolism of that, of, of becoming, uh, as we take His life into ourselves, and then and to let that transform us to to become more like him because we're actually taking you know the symbol is, is of taking his life his words his deeds his sacrifice into ourselves and to become transformed by that to the extent that we're we're doing these other symbolic acts of of being buried with him and, and being raised up again and, and, and putting on 
on the clothing and making the covenants, all of these things are all transformative and taking a name again. Uh, I think, you know, that all of these are temple things that we do because they, to actually perform the ordinances, to do the symbols, it, it, it transforms the way that we see and feel and understand. So there's, there's something at work here, even when we don't fully understand it as children. Uh, and as we as we grow, we we have the opportunity to learn and see more and more of this. And, and uh, if we you know pay attention and have our you know our minds opened and our hearts expanded and our souls enlarged, then that that following what he is actually doing in his life is you know it's what a lot of what he had to do according to the Book of Mormon was uh, to learn through his experience things that would help him be able to both, you know, judge, understand, and heal, ultimately heal us. And so as we go through that ourselves, we're moving in the same direction he did, even though, you know, we're not as far along, but we can move on the same path and hold to that rod and ultimately get to our, you know, the tree of life and taste the fruit, all of these symbols that are pointing towards something that's very real. I want to follow up on a little bit on what you'd said about the servant being a, a symbol, and I've got a little different um, uh, ending up in similar results with Margaret Barker, but a little different way to get there. Um, so Isaiah 52, verse um, 13, uh, is one of these servant songs and and mentions about the the servant of the lord and um i first noticed this when i was reading it in coptic which is a, a version of egyptian where instead of servant they actually had um instead of this is god talking about his servant this is god talking about his son um which is somewhat startling but i looked and yeah it's there in the septuagint uh, where it's talking about God's son there. Um, but the Targum have it just a little bit differently. Instead of saying, my servant, it's my servant, the Messiah. So they also got to that point. And so the idea of the servant being a symbol of, of Christ, um, is, or I wouldn't, don't know, know if I'd go for symbol more as a direct reference to Christ. Uh, is there um, in in the Isaiah passages as well? Um, as I say, it's it gets you a similar place, but uh, by a different means. Well, and for me, it, it's a follow up to um, the sacrifices that John was describing. But, you know, when the, when the priest would go into the temple, he would sprinkle the blood in a certain way across the altar and then across everything that was going to be cleansed, including the Ark of the Covenant. And then at the end, he would pour the blood, the remaining of the blood, in, in a certain place at the foot of the altar. And for me, that always has struck me as being symbolic of the cross itself and the garden. When Jesus was in the garden, his blood fell in a sprinkling type of fashion on the ground. 
according to the scriptures. And then, obviously, at the end, when he was pierced with a spear, um, his blood and water poured out according to the scripture. Well, in, in, the, in front of the altar, so geographically, if you're at the Temple of Jerusalem and you've got the altar there, you look out and you look out the gate and you see Gethsemane. Mm. And so it is the blood sprinkling in front of the altar, maybe a little bit further out than we thought, but but it's, it's pretty symbolic much because of the spatial relationship, right? It's pretty much it's it's a straight, as far as I can tell, it's a straight shot, uh, pretty much from from the altar to where Jesus pours out his blood. So. As we were talking, the Old Testament this past year has been anticipating the Savior coming. Um, we're going to be talking about the New Testament going forward. I think for Interpreter, we may be doing some other things as well, um, we as broadcasters. But what is it you are looking forward to most about our study of the New Testament this coming year, um, following this Christmas theme, if you will, of, uh, of uh, anticipation. Kevin, what are you looking forward to most about the New Testament? Um, just kind of renewing my acquaintance with it, uh, renewing the focus and being able to, to sit with the saints and uh, listening to other people who have a, will have different perspectives on it and that will kind of open up my mind and remind me that I don't see everything, and there's other people that are going to see things that excite me and make me glad that I was with them listening and reading and uh, in these different situations. And just um, the opportunity to partake the sacrament and be reading about you know, when it was established and what it meant, you know, and all of this stuff. Uh, there's a thing that... Um, that I got from reading uh, Cosmos and History, uh, Eliade's book, uh, uh, Myth of Eternal Return, where he talked about how when we when we go through the rituals, we abolish time to a degree, since you know it's the the one eternal round part of it instead of the my paths are straight, although they're both happening really at the same time. You know, when we when we do the rituals, we're we're participating in that. And so I could think about when I was a child, and we on Pioneer we had a thing where we dress up, you know semi-pioneer outfits and walk around the church. And in that sense, I felt like, yeah, I really I relate with, identify with the, the pioneers. And I think about that when we take the sacrament, as we did today, that I'm trying to relate with and identify with the earliest Christians, with, with uh, take eat, this is my body. And that moment and what it meant, and then the early Christians, is, that was part of theirs, and, and as for the saints, it's been with us. And reading about it in the Book of Mormon, it's something that, that uh, it, in a sense, it can abolish time and put us back there with them and help us identify with them, and in that sense, have our souls enlarged and our minds expanded, um, which is, I think, is one of the things that the gospel should do for us. So for me, I'm looking forward to revisiting some of the prophecies. I was on with Martin Tanner a couple of weeks ago, and we were doing Zechariah for our Come Follow Me. And I had forgotten how much I really enjoy and appreciate Zechariah 
in the prophecies of the Messiah, both for his coming in mortality as well as his second coming. I, I just, I, it caught me by surprise again as I was preparing for that broadcast. And I'm just really looking forward to it again to go through when the gospel writers identify certain prophecies, when we see Jesus fulfilling those prophecies. And having spent a whole year in a real deep concentration on the anticipation like we've been talking about this evening and then going forward. And then, you know, just kind of like following up with other scriptures. For example, uh, Isaiah 25 and 8. He will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. I just can't wait to focus on that in its in its form that's there given to us in the New Testament. Or Amulek, when he gives us in chapter 34 the description of the atonement and the great and last sacrifice, and just picturing Jesus teaching in the temple, teaching, working the miracles, um, trying to picture him in my mind. For a long time, I always wanted to dream that I could meet Lehi or Nephi. I mean, you know, um, and maybe I would dream to meet the Savior, but then again, that always makes me a little nervous (laughs) because maybe I'm not ready. But those are the kinds of things that I'm looking forward to, especially diving in, looking at the temple relationships, and getting back to some of those questions that um, originally caught my attention when I first started reading about Margaret Barker and Kevin's work is, what was it about Jesus and his teachings that caused all of these people to recognize him as the Messiah? Why did they recognize him when the powers that be and the political powers didn't? Those are the kinds of things that I'm really looking forward to and anticipating this year. John? I'm looking forward to getting back to the Gospels. Um, you know, the... Uh, As I've grown older, I appreciate the Gospels more and um, you know, Paul by comparison is okay but Jesus is much more um, interesting and relevant than Paul. And uh, it's, this is as close as we're going to get in this life, most of us, to being there. And I'm looking forward to reading them again and, uh, and learning again so we're all getting excited one last thing about this uh, Christmas presentation if you will this focus on the Old Testament was uh, a talk that President Nelson gave in 2016 it's called joy and spiritual revival now this is right before he became the prophet maybe a year or two and uh 
he says, my bro- dear brothers and sisters, I would like to discuss a principle that is a key to our spiritual survival. It is a principle that will only become more important as the tragedies and travesties around us increase. These are the latter days, so none of us should be surprised when we see prophecy fulfilled. And we continue to see that around us. He just says, The prophet Lehi taught a principle for spiritual survival. First, consider his circumstances. He was persecuted for preaching the truth in Jerusalem. He'd been commanded by the Lord to leave his possessions. He was living in a tent. He watched Laman and Lemuel rebel. So he knew opposition, anxiety, heartache, pain, disappointment, and sorrow. Yet he declared boldly and without reservation a principle as revealed by the Lord. Men are that they might have joy. President Nelson goes on, Imagine of all the words he could have used to describe the nature and purpose of our lives here in mortality, he chose the word joy. Life is filled with detours and dead ends, trials and challenges of every kind. Each of us has likely had times when distress, anguish, and despair almost consumed us, yet we are here to have joy? The answer is a resounding yes. How is that possible? What must we do to claim the joy? Well, he goes on to give some other experiences, and then essentially he says, when the focus of our lives is on God's plan of salvation and Jesus Christ and his gospel, we can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives. Joy comes from and because of him, he is the source of all joy. We feel at Christmas time when we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, and we can feel it all year round. For Latter-day Saints, Jesus Christ is joy. How do we claim that joy? We start by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that's what we do at Christmas. That's what we do in the New Testament. What are some ways this year maybe that we can encourage our listeners some of the things they can do to do what President Nelson says, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? John, we'll start with you. This is a real challenge, um, and most of you know how much of a challenge it is. Um, For some of you, it may be less of a challenge, but just try keeping up with the Come Follow Me. Um, That, I think, will help get you there, and um, it's something that's doable uh, but does require a bit of effort and so focus on the scriptures first a little less effort with the new testament than say the old well yeah it's a a, (laughs) about a third the size (laughs) Uh, yeah it's easier to it's it will be easier to keep up on it uh but it's just trying to keep up on it, I think, is worth the effort. Yeah. You know, um, on on my social media accounts, I saw some people that were kind of critical of some of the Come Follow Me broadcasts that other people do. Not this one, of course. Everybody really, this is unanimously <laughs> acclaimed. But um, I, it reminded me, 
It reminded me, some of the comments, it reminded me of something um, I'm humbled. One of my clients had a really rough life. He had trouble following the commandments and doing the things that he should have. And then late in his life, I mean, he'd been in jail. He'd, he'd had wealth. He'd lost his wealth. I mean, just a, a real challenging life. Didn't, didn't read anything, wasn't well-educated. And near the end, he got cancer. And I remember he came to visit me one time, and he was carrying a copy of the Book of Mormon Made Easier. And I'll tell you, I felt bad. And the reason I felt bad is there was a time in my life years ago when I was uh, just a little, uh, I won't say critical of the book, but I was, it was just like, well, the Book of Mormon is so straightforward. Why does anybody need help understanding it? And yet, with his educational background and everything, he was trying at the end to understand it in the best way he could. And this was a tool that he took advantage of to to help him, and it did help him. And it struck me in such a way that I would hope I would never be that, uh, I guess, intellectually proud, if you will, again. And um, I think there are lots of tools and lots of levels for all of us. Of course, provided that, you know, they don't lead us astray and give us false doctrine and other things like that. But I think I think it's important to remember that there's lots of different levels and there's lots of people out there and lots of tools that we're just trying to help each other to get by and to 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 put that together. I would just suggest, and then we'll have Kevin wrap up, but I would just suggest uh, visiting the temple more regularly which also is just like John, it could be a challenge. Um, You know, in St. George, we're without our temple, so we have to drive a little ways farther up to Cedar City. But um, I think it's important to make that trip maybe a little more often than we did last year because, as President Nelson says, the last days and the prophecies are coming, and we know from the scriptures, they're only the times around us are only going to get worse. How do we fight that? Well, following "Come, Follow Me" is a good thing. I think going to the temple is a good thing. Kevin, what what's something that you would suggest to the listeners to help them to, you know, focus on Jesus, the finisher of our faith? Well, as we read the stories, as we read the life, and we just remember one of the things that he says: "Those things which I have done, shall ye also do." that he wants us to, to imitate him in our daily lives, not just to, you know, to read the stories, but to do the actions and to, to try and behave to one another as he would behave because you know, that's exactly what he wants to see. That's you know, what the point of him making these demonstrations and telling these stories, the parables, and, and uh, the effort that was made to provide us the scriptures, you know, these you know, when, you, when we think about the huge sacrifices involved, you know, by the uh, by the Jews, by the, the New Testament writers, by those who transmitted the scriptures through the centuries, with Joseph Smith, with the modern revelations, that there was a tremendous effort made to get these to us and to take us, you know, to spend our time learning our ABCs or whatever language that we're we're reading it in to use all of that effort that's been given to take us into this and to really take it into our lives, you know, in the same way 
you know, symbolically that we protect the sacrament. We we remember his life. We remember his his blood that was given to us, and, and to really let ourselves be transformed by it, so that we take it back out and pass it out to our actions and the way we treat one another. Um, that's that's the point. That's that's the opportunity that we have in in reading these lessons and participating in a community of saints who have needs and who, who need help and who, who want this fellowship and, and to share the light that we have and take light from others. Well, thank you, Kevin. We appreciate you all joining us this evening for this uh, special broadcast. We wish all of you to have a good Christmas. Those of you who are listening to us on the podcast, those who are listening live, we hope you join our co-hosts next week for Interpreter Foundation Radio next Sunday evening at this time. Thank you for listening. For my co-hosts, John Gee and Kevin Christensen, that's it for this evening. Thanks for listening.